Super Talk Mississippi media production. State Treasurer David McRae has put millions back into the hands of Mississippi citizens, expanding the state's affordable college and career savings program and also returning record amounts of unclaimed money. Check out how Treasurer David McRae's office can help you, your business, or your organization. Treasury.ms.gov. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this hump day. Heck dang yeah. It's nice out there too. It's not all that humid today. Clear sky For now. For, the time. For at the time, yeah. Weatherman's saying there should be pop-up thunderstorms this afternoon, but then again they've said that the last week and a half and it really hadn't happened well they pop up they just may not pop up over your head (laughs) i noticed here in central mississippi on sunday they moved through the uh northern area of madison county where i reside but split around us down here in the southern part of the county in ridgeland but that's okay that's just part it seems of the like every time i look at it it's 50 percent chance of thunderstorms and that coin flip never seems to wind up heads <laughs> we could actually use uh, a little precipitation just a little this, moisture around this area it was uh, quite the wet spring uh in winter honestly but now it's a little dry but that's okay that's part of the way it is around here Wow, we got a lot of stuff going on once again in a 24-hour period. First, here in central Mississippi, folks, no secret that there's no love lost between Councilman Kenneth Stokes, who represents Ward 3 of the city of Jackson, and Mayor Chokwe Antar Labumba. Little fireworks yesterday at the city council meeting. Shouting match ensued, is the way it was described. And you saw that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they got into a rather tense argument, I think is the way to put it. Stokes ended up calling Lumumba's chief of staff, Safiya Omari, a, quote, thief at least three times. <laughs> As Jackson Police Department Interim Chief Joseph Wade had to kind of travel up to the front of the room there just in case any physical altercation should break out. And they were voting on whether or not to earmark 250 grand out of the city budget to hire some individuals who would staff a newly formed grants department. 
a grants compliance officer, a grants specialist, and a program administrator, and that's so they could focus on completing the various application procedures to get money for the city. They'll take that responsibility away from the the various departments within the city who sort of do their own deal and just have folks that they assign that task to within the departments. So it got tense. It got a little hostile between the parties there. And Stokes said he needed answers for the public. Quote, people telling us about grant money going here, grant money going there, and now we're going to put some more people dealing with grants and money that's coming to the city when the council will not and have not had direct oversight. Not right for government. Not right for the people. That's what he says. So the chief of staff of the mayor, whom Councilman Stokes called a thief, said, quote, I just want to state for the record that there is no $1 million missing, and that is misinformation, and if Councilman Stokes wants some clarification, he needs to be very specific about that missing money. (laughs) Wow. Sort of hard to address the most pressing issues of our capital city when you got this kind of stuff going on, it would seem. Because we have rampant crime, we obviously have huge problems with the water system in the city, the roads, a decline in population, more businesses and residents discussing possible exit from the capital city. None of this is good. And it seems like we... We have a city government in our capital city that, uh, at a minimum, we could say, don't really get along real well. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Wow. Also, the Biden administration announced, with respect to the capital city, first funds for the Jackson Water System, a whole bunch of money, you know, $600 million was promised as part of the Inflation Reduction Act as well as the Omnibus Spending Bill. Remember that. $1.7 trillion that passed to the chagrin of the House, passed the Senate, got sent over to the House. The House said, please wait till we get the new Congress seated, but they did not do that over there in the Senate. Passed it anyhow, did get the votes of 17, 18 Republicans to go along with the omnibus spending bill. But the first slice of that hundred, uh, pardon me, that 600 million committed to the city will be headed their way, 115 million of it coming to Jackson. This was announced by the U.S. EPA and President Joe Biden yesterday, a federally appointed third-party water manager and the corporation overseen by the manager, 
will be administering and uh, investing this money, shall we say. Is this the same manager that wanted it, wanted your water bill to be based on your property value? I believe that was a suggestion, correct. And you remember that was a... So I don't have a whole lot of faith in this $115 million actually being used effectively or efficiently. That was an issue debated down at our state capitol, as you recall. A measure to prohibit such billing practices, that sort of structure. So, $115 million. Of course, uh, President Biden specifically thanked Representative Benny Thompson for his untiring commitment to the Jackson community. There you go. Now, keep in mind, folks, there's one little problem with this $600 million. We ain't got it. Just every time you see this money like this, just keep in mind, we're on track to produce a $2 trillion deficit this year. $4.56 trillion coming in, $6.56 trillion going out. That's the way it works. That leaves a $2 trillion deficit. That's bigger than the entire discretionary spending component of the federal budget. That's how crazy it is. Yet we have a president that continues to run around boasting about how he brought the deficit down, biggest in history, without the context, the nuance, the facts, the truth. This is what gets me riled up. I know. I'll probably get a text in a minute. You're yelling again, (laughs) Gerard. That's because lying and duplicity coming from our elected officials, especially the highest level of government in this country, just drives me crazy. I cut the deficit more than anyone in history. You created it. It's unbelievable. And without regard for the fact that You're about to watch it rise in this year under your presidency, under your administration, under your watch, more than any in history. No regard for that whatsoever. So while I understand folks in the capital city and in Mississippi in general may be celebrating this money coming their way to address the aging, dilapidated failing water system, just bear in mind, all we're doing is adding that to the debt tile. I mean, that's easy. There's nothing noble, nothing productive, nothing to celebrate about that. He just printed more money. Big deal. That's easy. Imagine if you had a money printer in your house. You could They'd have take a... take you to jail. That's exactly right. But not the federal government, of course. That's how they roll. They couldn't auction. Um, they couldn't function. Excuse me. Without I got auctioning on the mind, because when we come back, I'm going to talk about how the Fed is now about to release a torrent of treasury bills and bonds and notes. Now that the debt ceiling deal is behind us, they can go borrow money. We're coming right back. We've got Zach Taylor and Richard Steinwinder. With Taylor Power Systems at 1037, Congressman Guest at 1105. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. 
Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s, Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk Mississippi. We're back in the Element Well Studios. It's midday, Super Talk Mississippi. Play the sound on the ceasefire text line. That's 601-879-4395. I think he's talking about the city council meeting. I don't have any. I'm not sure that I saw any. I saw some still photos, but I don't know that there's any video. It, I saw it streaming, but I don't think there's yeah. an archive of it. Yeah. I think that's right. Uh, yeah. I wasn't recording it while I was streaming it. Yeah. Apologies. Dave said most grants have money built into them for administration, so this should have been identified in the grant application itself. So I'm not sure what you mean there, Dave, but the the money, this $250,000 that the city council deliberated yesterday is to create a group that would apply for grants, not administer grants. Because, as you know, that's, that's a fairly onerous process. Lots of uh, information gathering, document preparation, completing the application. It is involved. Uh, The submission, the completion of the grant, and then submitting it, and then answering the myriad of questions you typically get. So this isn't for administering the grant itself. That would be uh, handled by others. This is specifically to apply for grants. And... As you know, Rhino, just seeking available money. It's so gigantic. And that's just because our government, through the so years... So overinflated. Exactly. Has created a myriad of programs. So just identifying possible grant programs that are applicable, to which the city would be eligible, and there's no doubt. And that's just because, in my view, we got too many of them. This is crazy. Well, and here's why we have too many, because we're broke. I can't, keep, uh, can't quit saying that enough. We're running on a deficit. We ought to be looking for ways to curb spending. And every time I see these politicians say, oh, yeah, spending's out of control. Well, what do you want to cut? I'll get back to you on that. They won't get into the specifics. And they don't want to do the math. But they can talk a big game. It's just another example of how divided our country is and how conflicted we are about the role of government. That just never seems to factor into the decision-making process. What is the proper role of government? Gene and Mendenhall says, don't forget about the leaking sewage into our creeks and rivers. That from the city of Jackson. I hear you, Gene. And there's been some folks gone to social media now that say, hey, it stinks around here. You've seen that? Houses? Doesn't are, the fine just keep piling up and they're never actually going to pay it? I think so, but it, it does make you wonder the way our federal government and our mass of agencies have been politicized. Are they perhaps looking the other way because of who's in charge of the city? the inhabitants of the city. If this were a a right-leaning community, 
that was run by Republicans. You think the EPA would look the other way? I got a feeling they wouldn't. That's a problem. Inconsistent application of law, of regulations, of fines in this case. I really do feel like they're just looking the other way intentionally. In the name of equity, right? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Thomas and Greenwood, did you catch Wicker bragging about military spending on Gallo this morning? If deficit spending on social programs is wrong, isn't it wrong for military spending as well? I think that, once again, is uh, related to the fundamental question, what is the proper role of government? And so, yes, as we said a couple of days ago when we shared that of our Washington delegation, four in the U.S. House and two, of course, in the Senate, over on the House, one member did vote against the debt ceiling bill. That would be Congressman Michael Guest will be on the program at 11.05 today. Our other three members did vote in favor of it. However, on the Senate, both the senators voted against the bill, but for different reasons. It is true that in Senator Wicker's remarks, it appeared that he was disappointed at the the uh, spending on the military, on defense, as prescribed in the debt ceiling bill. He felt like that it was not keeping up with inflation. Thus, it was a net reduction. Senator Hyde-Smith I think pretty much stated the the common concerns of hey we're spending too much money and it's not sustainable and we got to do something. So again, it's what's the proper role of government. So no, Thomas, you t- completely took what I just said out of context. You said so it's proper to spend more than you take in if it's for the military. Nobody said that. I simply said that I'd like to see our government start to debate and consider and evaluate its proper role. Our spending on the military, I I would argue and submit that defense of the nation is a principal, if not the principal, responsibility of the federal government. No defense, no country. Whether or not it's prudent to spend more than you take in for the military, that's a completely different question. I'm just talking about the role of government. But here's the math. It's 15% of total spending. Pretty soon, interest on debt will eclipse, as an annual spending amount will eclipse annual spending on defense. That seems insane to me. Interest on the debt, one wouldn't think, is the constitutionally appropriate prescribed role of government. And in fact, we didn't have any debt until 1917, and that was to finance World War I. We didn't have debt. We didn't have a debt ceiling till then. So Thomas says we needed to cry all deficit spending well, sure, it's $2 trillion. What do you want to cut? He always brings up the socialist medicine program. So, Thomas, I assume that means you want to 
completely eliminate Medicare and Medicaid. That's what you call socialist medicine programs. And if you look at the composition of the insured in this country, health insurance we're talking about, when you add up those on Medicaid and Medicare, that's about 140, 50 million people. It's half the country on government insurance, health insurance. And then you got uh, about 140, 50 million. Uh, it's, it's a little less than half the country. 140, 50 million in the private markets, both the group and the individual. And then you got about 25 million who aren't insured. That's kind of the way it shakes out, according to the latest data. Probably too much swamp water in Jackson, says Carol in Starkville. Article in the Daily Journal this morning. Here we go. Compared to an industry standard, about 90, what what is it saying here? Jackson only collects 56% of fees from its struggling water system. Yeah, that's that's been a front and center issue. Appreciate that on C Spire tax line. That the city of Jackson has not really been very competent in collecting payments for water services. And, in fact, they're not very competent in billing for water services. You've heard the I mean, think about any bill you get. If all of a sudden you stopped getting that bill, but you still received the service, you'd probably try, being a, a good American, to holler at them, reach out, hey, where's my bill? But eventually, you'd give up. As, and if you're still getting the service with no penalty for not getting the bill and not paying it, you just kind of forget about it. Yeah. That's happened to half the freaking city. They don't enforce it. I too, I also believe they look the other way just because it's... It's politically expedient. No doubt about it. It's it's totally political. It's not the the prudent thing to do from a business perspective. Rather, it's kind of the popular thing to do. Look, I can use water with impunity. I don't have to pay for it. On the ceasefire text line, I begged Thompson to get involved with the water problem way before it finally broke, and his office told me it was a city issue and to contact the mayor. He didn't get involved until the cameras were turned on. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, and then, but again, back to the proper role of government, what you're saying and what we're asking for here when you say, hey, Thompson, you got to get involved, that's basically saying, hey, taxpayers elsewhere, outside of the city of Jackson, we're going to take your money and fix Jackson's water problem. Coming right back with Zach Taylor and Richard Steinwinder from Taylor Power System. Stay with us. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. I see what you did there. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays, live from the Element Well Studios. We welcome Zach Taylor, the general manager, Taylor Power, Power Systems. Pardon me, Zach, who you got with you today? Uh, Richard Steinwander and Mr. Kevin Reddy. I got you. And, Richard, you are the service manager, right, for Taylor Correct. Power? Yes. 
All right. So it's hurricane season in Mississippi. It comes around June every 1st year. June 1st and November 30th. Man. Right. And uh, a lot of times these storms move through and we lose power. Yes, sir. At our homes, our businesses, but you got a solution for that, right? Yes, sir. So uh, the NOAA uh, is forecasting around 12 to 19 named storms this season, and, you know, five to seven of those can potentially become hurricanes. So it's inevitable we're going to lose a lot of power on the coastline, you know, areas uh, here in the next few months. So uh, we offer several different products. So I'm the GM of Taylor Power Systems. Uh, we uh, we design, engineer, and manufacture uh, standby and prime power generators in Clinton, Mississippi. I have about 140 employees there. Um, so uh, our mobile, so our prime power, which we, we, we consider it's our uh, mobile generator, so it ranges from 25 kW to 1280 kW. And these are trailerized gen sets that can be transported anywhere in the United States for any of these areas that might be out of power. Um, and, you know, you got to think about hurricanes. You have houses, you have hospitals, nursing homes, communication towers. I mean, you lose power. Everything's such an important thing. So, you know, for us to be able to dispatch these units there um, is so important. And, uh, you know, we only go up to 1280. Uh, and a lot of these buildings require, you know, 2000 kW and above. So a cool thing about these mobile generators is you can pull. So we could pull two 1000 kWs on site. And connect them together, which is what we call paralleling, which can make 2,000 kW. So I got you. that option, man, it, it offers a lot of variability on any application that we might need to cater to on the mobile side. Uh, we also offer uh, a residential line that ranges uh, 12 kW, 20 kW, 26 kW, 30 kW, and 48 kW. And, uh, you know, a homeowner that might already own a residential generator, it's uh, you walk outside every day by it and you don't really think about it, but, you know, these is a piece of equipment and they have wear and tear items. So, you know, every year it happens, and these guys can speak more on it, but, um, you know, the power goes out, and we start getting calls on, hey, you know, my generator didn't come on for, for, for any type of reason. And, uh, you know, it's, that's why we just stress the fact that it's so important. If you haven't had a PM schedule set up on your generator or if you, you know, haven't had one done in the past six months, it's so important. Preventative maintenance. Preventative maintenance, yeah. correct. Uh, you give us a shout, and, uh, you know, you contact these guys. So Sudden Service Incorporated, who these guys are with, okay. they uh, they have about 35 locations with 100 technicians. They have 300 technicians together, but 100 of those are focused on, you know, the power generation side. So contact them. They'll dispatch out a tech. They'll come to your house, your business, whatever site. They'll have all the parts, you know, they need on their truck, and they'll perform the PM right there to get that generator, you know, smooth sailing. So when the power – goes out and the time does come you know everything will be all good okay so explain the relationship uh, you you run the company you manage the company that builds these systems right? yes sir i'm on the and OEM then you side. sell them through dealers authorized dealers we're mostly direct you sell direct, direct. okay yes, i want to make sure i understand that. we okay. have uh we have a few dealer entities uh more in the northwest region where we don't uh have brick and mortar service stores so kind of uh, what our direction is you know we want to sell products in places that we can have brick and mortar stores yeah. and our employees there to, to, to directly, you know, service and, and, and back up the product. Uh, for all those other regions, you know, we're kind of, we're, we're kind of scarce on our locations. We, we, we depend on other, uh, third party dealers or your location, service dealers. Your main location is in Clinton. Yes, right? sir. In Clinton, Mississippi. So that's awesome. You know, there was a time, it seemed to me like Zach, that mostly organizations that had standby power were Larger entities that were fixed on-site hospitals, for example, uh, some other various places of business. But now there are lots of um, uh, available systems that make sense for the residential market. Correct. 
I mean, it's changed quite a bit. It they're has. they're affordable. Yes, sir. Uh, that's what's changed. They're not as big as they used to be. You yes, can sir. get more power out of smaller footprint. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are sick of their power going down. <laughs> I know I am when that happens, and so this is a good way uh, to deal with that. Is that kind of what you're seeing, Kevin? Yeah, definitely. That's what we're seeing. Uh, the most important thing about these generators is the preventative maintenance. You can go out and get a generator, and you can set it there. Well, if you don't take care of it, it's not going to uh, perform when it's called on. Okay. So what we like to do with our customers is set them up on a preventative maintenance agreement. It's two visits a year. We come When we set the unit six months later, we come out and inspect it, make sure everything's working correctly. Mm-hmm. Then six months later, we come out and do a PM. That's oil change, filter changes, things of that nature. And by us doing this, when it's called on, it performs. Okay. And if it doesn't perform like it's supposed to, for whatever reason, maybe it's hit by lightning, uh, a customer has a PM agreement with us, they become a priority. So when a storm hits and we get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of calls, obviously hospitals and nursing homes, their priority, sure. life safety. Sure. But after that, those customers that have an agreement with us have priority and they go to the top of the list. Sure. And so as, as part of the PM process, would you switch the power? To just test to make sure that uh, it's switching over properly, run the electricity of the of the building or the facilities that are backed yeah, up. Yes, sir. We definitely do transfer tests. We make sure yeah. everyone in the building's aware. You know, sometimes some of these uh, these buildings are very sensitive. Yeah. Banks and things of that nature. Right. So we do plan transfer switches, and we also do maintenance on transfer switches as well. Okay. We maintain those and make sure they're going to be working correctly. Yeah, I got you. You know, the life Zach and his team build a quality quality product. But we're going to be there with that product for its entire life. Gotcha. And I don't care what piece of equipment you put out there. If it's not properly maintained, it will not do its job for the for the life of that it should last. Sure. Our, our quality sells the first product, but service is what sure what what the the second, the third, the fourth uh, units are. That's how they're sold. Is these guys do a great job on 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 supporting our product. Yeah. It totally makes sense. And prioritizing those that are under contract makes total sense. That's what they're paying for. They're paying for their priority. That's they're right. paying for you to be there when they have an issue. That's right. That's right. And well, like Zach was talking about, if a storm hits this area, uh, our local technicians are going to be slammed trying to take care yeah. of their regular customers. We've got hundreds and hundreds of calls coming in. Well, we've got five different ride-in teams is what we call them. So after the storm comes in, we bring in extra technicians, extra equipment, extra people for, to work inside to handle the overflow of calls that are coming in, but to make sure those people that we call priority and live up to what we call our self-sudden service, yeah. this allows us to do that by yeah. bringing in extra help. And your service location is in Richland, is that right? For Mississippi, it's in Richland, okay. but we have 35 locations across 13 states. We cover the coastline from Texas all the way down to Miami back up to Virginia. So anywhere a hurricane's coming in that area, we have locations to take care of those guys. Does your phone ring off the wall after a hurricane comes through? It doesn't hey, stop. I think I'm going to do it now. Yeah, you just go ahead and get your bunch of Red Bull because you're going to be up for a couple of days. But it makes it's, it's, it, it, there's a sense of feeling good about what you do yeah. because what we do affects a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, we we just had a, a storm come through in New Orleans. We had a nursing home down there that they were trying to evacuate, but they couldn't evacuate everyone. You have people in there on oxygen. Those mm-hmm. oxygen uh, tanks, they have like an eight-hour backup battery on yeah. them. So their uh, fuel tank was underground. It took on water. So mm-hmm. our technicians sat out there for two days and started off feeding that uh, generator out of a five-gallon bucket into a 55-gallon drum until the Army Corps of Engineers could get a uh, generator over there. Wow. And I got a call from the uh, director over there telling me that you guys save lives here. Yeah. So gives you a good feeling. Zach, how has the technology evolved in the last few years for backup power systems? 
Well, it's uh, right now everything's, you know, kind of directing towards, you know, battery-powered technology, yeah. battery power, battery storage, and uh, hybrid technology and, and solar panels, of course. Um, but, you know, what we've been discussing internally, you know, they're, they're talking about uh, these hydrogen-powered gensets. And, you know, if those get claimed as non-emissions, then I think the focus on batteries will completely go hmm. away and shift back towards hydrogen. Interesting. Which, yeah, very interesting. So uh, we uh, – on the, I, I, I know we're talking about generators here, but uh, we we uh, we manufactured the first container handler that that, that lifts containers and stuff uh, in uh, in the port of L.A. and it runs completely completely electric. It's crazy, um, but you know the infrastructure in California isn't there yet to charge these machines. So we're actually building you know fossil fuel power generators <laughs> to power these uh, electric trucks. So it's just funny, but uh, the, the 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 technology is trying. I mean the direction is evolving, but you know. To get the infrastructure in place to actually support that, it's going to be a few years. Hmm. Interesting. And you also uh, handle light towers. Tell us we about do. that. Yeah. So uh, we offer a 4KW and 8KW light tower. Uh, can put off around 60,000 square foot of uh, illumination. And uh, the big selling feature about these towers, number one, they're high, they have a hydraulic mass that you can lift up with a button. A lot of your other towers are cranks. Um, and uh, they also run off 200 hours on one tank of diesel, which is huge. You don't have to worry about refueling these things uh, for for different for shorter intervals of time, uh, which is very important for you know a disaster relief type environment where you know you got to have lights. Um, yeah. And uh, another very strong feature on these towers is you can auto program the start and stop. So you know when the sun goes down, oh, automatically cut on. Sun comes back up, they'll they'll, they'll cut off. So uh, yeah, Makes I like sense. towers are great. Uh, before we go, your folks that do the service, your your technicians, they go through various uh, training courses. They're certified and so forth to do all this. I yes, think, sir. Right? We have multiple levels of training classes. That the uh, classes are held at Taylor Power, so we give our technicians a pathway to become master technicians. Gotcha. That's important. You want to make important. sure somebody knows what they're doing when That's they're right. working on it because they're complicated machines. They are. Yeah. They are. Appreciate you guys coming in. Yes, sir. Best Thank of you. luck to you. Hurricane season's here. You need to call now, right? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Give us a number. Six zero one nine. Three two uh, five six seven four, or our website at taylorpowergenerators.com. Appreciate it, guys. Yes, We're sir. coming right back with more in the Element Well Studios. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. We're back with you in the Element Wealth Studios. It's middays. We thank you so much for joining us. Congressman Michael Guest will join us after the news break at the top of the hour, 11.05. The congressman will call in from Washington. Uh, Found out after the interview, Rhino, that uh, Taylor Power Systems folks used to do maintenance on... Uh, the generators we had at our data center, we had several, oh. and they were gigantic uh, diesel and natural gas-powered 
uh, generators, and that was to keep everything going in the event of a power outage. Not only all the IT equipment, it first would fail over to battery backup, and if line power wasn't restored within 15, 20 minutes, it would switch over via some very sophisticated transfer switching equipment that, by the way, you think of just like one sort of switch. No, it was a room full of stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was the switch. And uh, and so it would switch over to generator power, and then when line power was restored, it would automatically transfer back to line power. And it would keep everything going, all the IT equipment. There were hundreds and hundreds of racks of gear, uh, plus the air conditioning, because that's essential, or the stuff melts down. Uh, the humidifiers to avoid static electricity in the atmosphere inside the data center, and then the lights, of course. But the rest of the building was not, didn't need it, really, on standby power, but the data center did. And it, it uh, like they said, they would come out and do the preventative maintenance, and we would switch everything over, simulate an outage, essentially, and make sure everything worked. And, and then restore it, of course, but that was part of the preventative maintenance. But where I'm going with this is it got a workout in Katrina. Because when Katrina hit, as you recall, the Tri-County area, for the most part, was dark. Here in central Mississippi, as the storm moved north from the coast. And the facility there was serviced by the three main grids that service the central Mississippi area. And we always knew if we lose line power, and that was intentional when this building was built in the late 70s, we always knew if we lose line power, that means pretty much the whole central Mississippi area is dark. That's what happened. There were little pockets, you remember, of of, uh, power that didn't fail, but for the most part, the whole place was dark. And that's what happened. And it failed over, and for 72 hours, everything worked perfect. And our customers were pleasantly shocked, but that's what they paid us for, to make sure that they could keep computing. Now, I will say, no surprise, the water failed. We were in the city of Jackson. It doesn't take much for the water to fail. And this was... Sneeze wrong, and it's all out. Exactly. Now, this is 18 years ago. It's 2005. It wasn't quite as in the dire condition it is today. But nonetheless, the water failed, and I used to tell people when we'd, would we be entertaining prospects for our services from the data center, I'd tell the story of how we weathered the Katrina, about as bad as it can get, right? But we could not wash our hands or pee because <laughs> water failed in the building, but we kept on computing. The computing kept on working. So bit bit of a... I guess a prop for backup power. Of course, you got to have that in a data center, and that's what customers expect. That's what they pay for, and that all worked like a champ. Happy to say. Something else along the technology front, I found fascinating story announcement that there's a six billion billion dollar investment being made to convert wind. To gasoline, this is this is fascinating. So, so many times I've said that 
Your life, your life is not funny. <laughs> it is a little funny when you just bre- like it wind to gas it, like you catch the wind in a big bag, and then you put it under a heat lamp, and then you pour the gasoline out. That's what that's what it kind of sounds well, like at first. Uh, okay, I misspoke. How about it's not converting wind; it's using wind power. There you go. Okay, so my my apologies. I misspoke there. I forget which one is it: the Iliad or the Odyssey, where they catch <laughs> the wind in a bag. That's right. So they're using wind power to run machines, they're called electrolyzer machines. So these separate the hydrogen out of the water. And then the hydrogen is combined with recycled carbon dioxide, you know, the stuff we're trying to get out of the air. And these reactions, they figured out, create hydrocarbons, and that's essentially gasoline. And they claim it's indistinguishable. So think about that. This will drive the climate people nuts. Because this really isn't what they want. No. But this is how you solve human problems. It's human innovation. And guess what? Somebody might get rich doing that. Oh, the horror, right? Heaven forbid. <laughs> We're taking a break for Fox News and Super Talk News. Coming back with Congressman Michael Guest. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays, live from the Element Wealth Studios on this hump day. We're pleased to welcome to the program now Congressman Michael Guest. He represents Mississippi's 3rd District. Representative Guest, thanks for joining us this morning, sir. Gerard, good to talk to you again. Yes, sir. So since we last talked, a whole lot of stuff's happened up there in Washington and perhaps... uh, the uh, highest profile legislation that was deliberated for quite some time and was touch and go for a while recently signed into law by the president the debt ceiling bill the so-called debt ceiling bill which would allow the government to return to borrowing money to pay the bills you were a no on the measure tell us about it congressman yeah, and you're right, Gerard. This is something that uh, we've been talking about uh, and knew since uh, new Congress was sworn in uh, in January that uh, there would be an X date. We were unsure exactly when that X date would be. That would really be dependent upon uh, the money coming into the US, United States Treasury versus money going out. Uh, Janet Yellen, uh, Secretary of the Treasury, uh, originally notified uh, Congress uh, and the White House that uh, the X date where we would actually be uh, spending more money than we were bringing in would be June the 1st. And that set off uh, really a a, a scramble uh, of negotiations uh, between, uh, ultimately between Kevin McCarthy uh, and Joe Biden. Uh, McCarthy had been trying since February to get Biden to negotiate uh, 
terms uh, for the debt ceiling either being raised or uh, what later ended up being suspended, uh, and came out uh, with some concessions uh, from the administration uh, to suspend the debt ceiling uh, to the end of next year. Uh, and it was a bill that was supported by both Republicans and Democrats, but also uh, a bill that uh, members from both sides uh, did not support. Uh, I ended up voting against the legislation, uh, and, and my rationale was I just thought it didn't go far enough. I, I think that um, we are continuing to spend money uh, at a pace that I'm extremely concerned about, uh, uh, that it is unsustainable, uh, and I feel like that, that we missed an opportunity to do more to address the spending problem that we have in Washington, D.C. Barely passed, right? It did. Uh, it, 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 it passed, uh, particularly the House, uh, somewhat overwhelmingly. I, I think that uh, about 65% of the Republicans in the House supported the legislation. Yeah. I think somewhere between 70 and 75% of the Democrats in the House supported it. Uh, and then uh, when it was voted on in the Senate, uh, I don't remember the exact number, uh, but uh, they were able to pass fairly easily in the Senate. Uh, I will say that both of our Mississippi senators, uh, Senator Roger Wicker and Cindy Hyde-Smith, uh, also voted no on the legislation. Yeah, and what I meant to say, my apologies, the original debt ceiling bill that passed the House that Speaker McCarthy used as his bargaining chip, if you will, that's what barely passed the House. I mean, pretty That's much right. on a partisan basis, as you would expect. Uh, and then it, once it got uh, doctored up by the parties negotiating on, on behalf of the chambers and the president, uh, yeah, it garnered bipartisan support. And so it, it really wasn't uh, didn't find any trouble passing and then ultimately getting signed. One of the things that concern me, you mentioned Secretary uh, Janet Yellen, a little bit of fear-mongering, I felt like, was going on, especially from the Democrats, uh, basically pounding the drum that we were going to default on our our interest and principal payments on our debt, which would certainly have been catastrophic economically. But, Congressman, we still have $400 billion a month coming into the Treasury. Now, I understand we're spending over $500 billion, but, okay, if it means you guys would have to figure out how to pay the bills and work with that, the first thing you're going to do is pay that $50 billion on the debt so to avoid default. Yeah, and, and just like when we shut the government down, Gerard, you know, if, if we don't pass appropriations bills and there's a temporary government shutdowns, which we've had in the past, uh, ultimately, once we're able to um, uh, um, find a solution to the impasse, uh, everyone is paid uh, when we have a government shutdown. Yeah. And, and I believe that that's exactly what would have happened in this situation. If uh, we would not have agreed on anything, uh, then the tre- Treasury Secretary, she would have had to prioritize which bills she was going to pay immediately. Sure. Uh, and then after we were able to resolve the debt ceiling, uh, then any bills that we had not paid, uh, then those uh, <laughs> creditors uh, would have uh, been made whole. Uh, and so, you know, I, I thought some of the skies falling type of things <laughs> that, that, that people were claiming, uh, you know, I, I, I thought that they may have been a little overblown. It would have had some uh, effect, impact on our financial markets, but I believe the markets would have recovered uh, after we would have passed 
legislation. Uh, you know, the, really the only concern, uh, the, the long-term concern that I had, you know, was what would, would it do to uh, the, the rate uh, at which the United States government is able to borrow money. Uh, sure. We know that we have uh, a very low interest rate uh, because uh, the the possibility of the default, particularly long-term default, is uh, slim to none. And so it, there, there would have been some potential long-term impact there, uh, but I believe a lot of the fear-mongering that we can't get past this X date, and if we do, it's going to have dire yeah. effects, not only on the U.S. economy, uh, but the global economy. I thought many of those claims were overblown. Yeah. I mean, we'd have found the $50 billion to make the interest in principal payments. That, that's the point uh, with the money we had coming in to avoid defaulting on our, our obligations on our treasuries. Uh, that's That was really something they use. And, and I would read uh, your colleague, Hakeem Jeffries, tweets on a daily basis between him and the president. And the fear-mongering was just over the top and honestly just inaccurate, just wasn't truthful. But a lot of people don't know that, and they take that to the bank and, you know, and they, they hold your side accountable for it, unfortunately. Well, you know, and, and, and if you look at this versus the clean debt ceiling, I mean, clearly there were concessions that McCarthy uh, and his negotiating team were able to obtain from the White House. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, uh, if you compare it to the Limit Save Grow Act, which uh, you talked about narrowly passed uh, the House several months ago, uh, the bill does not uh, go uh, uh, as far as, as that as that legislation would have. And look, it's, you know, we live in a an era of a divide government uh, Republicans control one half of one third of the federal government yeah. uh, and so you know for people to say that, that this was uh, the worst deal ever and Republicans got nothing out of it uh, I would argue that that, that, that statement is uh, factually incorrect uh, but I will tell you that there were many individuals including myself who voted against it because we feel like it did not go far enough gotcha let's turn our attention to something here in the state of Mississippi on federal uh, federal installation, our VA on the coast, displaying the pride flag. And that got noticed, and boy, that got folks uh, created quite a commotion. You wrote a letter, didn't you? I did. Uh, actually, the the entire delegation, Republican members of the delegation, uh, sent a letter this week. Uh, I was notified of it, I guess, late last week. Um, uh, the facility uh, in question uh, down on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and so uh, I had a couple people reach out to me, uh, share a local news article uh, that uh, the pride flag was flying over a, a VA uh, facility uh, down in South Mississippi. Uh, I reached out to Congressman Mike Ezell since uh, that is uh, geographically uh, the area that he represents. Uh, he was aware of it. Uh, his office was in the process of doing uh, an individual letter, which he actually sent on, on Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entire delegation signed a letter Monday, uh, which was sent uh, asking uh, that that flag be removed. And so uh, whether it be a, a pride flag, a, a, a a Black Lives Matter flag, uh, you know, a, a pro-law enforcement flag. Yeah. You know, I, I don't believe that that's proper for, for for things of that nature to be flown uh, by our federal government. Uh, you know, there there are those, those are social issues, and we're bringing social issues uh, into uh, the government arena, and 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 and, and it's just 
inappropriate uh, that, that we have an administration that uh, is allowing these types of displays to occur. Uh, and so the entire delegation felt very strongly, uh, and, and I was proud to have been able to join that letter. Uh, and, and we hope that we'll see the interim director of that facility, uh, that, that, that she'll consider responding to uh, the concerns that we've raised, and we would like to see that flag removed. Yeah, so true. And, and uh, I mean, we, it's a military installation, essentially, and it should fly the American flag is what it should fly. And That's right. You know, and, and look, you know, I mean, I, I, I think uh, to, to some service members uh, that, that, it's, that it's offensive. And I yeah. think that, you know, we should do everything within our power uh, not to engage in these social issues where, where people have a very strongly held views one way or the other. Uh, yeah. You know, if someone were to have flown a, a Christian flag there uh, over that facility, right. you know, uh, you know, uh, there, there, there would have been individuals uh, that might have had concerns about that. And so uh, I, I think it's it is wrong when we begin to, uh, uh, particularly on, on social issues, uh, to be flying flags uh, either in support of, of one side or the Agree. other. Uh, that's not. We got a break VA right here, Congressman. We got a break. We'll come back, talk some more. Stay with us. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. We're back. Thanks for joining us. It's midday, Super Talk Mississippi. We've got Congressman Michael Guest on the line with us. He represents Mississippi's 3rd District. So, uh, well, I'm glad that you guys addressed that uh, with the flag. And and, and i got to say, Congressman, I, I appreciate your position on that. It, it's not necessarily a slant on the LGBTQ community. We shouldn't really promote or give some sort of special treatment by flying a flag that represents any specific group. It's the United States, and this is a, a military installation of the United States. It represents all people, and that's why the American flag, and perhaps maybe a, a branch of the armed services flag, are appropriate, but nothing else in my view. Yeah, and I agree 100%, and I think that was some of the language within the letter uh, that when we sent it to the uh, Secretary of the VA, uh, yeah. that, look, we we don't want our uh, VA facilities to be politicized uh, supporting one group or the other. Huh. Uh, we ought to represent all veterans. Uh, the, anything that, that we fly, again, should be related to their to their service, uh, either our, our, either the, the American flag or, as you mentioned, one of the flags of, of, of one of our branches of uh, armed services, uh, and we should limit it to, to that in its entirety. Absolutely. All right, so we've got a possible investigation going on in the House. Uh, Representative Comer from Kentucky looks like he's trying to get FBI Director Ray uh, to release some documents and, and come testify. How's that going? You know, uh, this has been an ongoing battle uh, that... Uh, 
uh, Chairman Comer uh, has had uh, with Director Ray, particularly over what's known as a, a form FD-1023. Uh, and so uh, there was a form, a non-classified document that was in the possession of the FBI uh, in which an informant, uh, a, a long-time paid informant of the FBI who had worked uh, uh, at the behest of the FBI for over a decade, uh, made a report to the FBI uh, that this individual had firsthand knowledge of a conversation with a foreign natural, a national uh, that would have uh, linked at that point uh, Vice President Joe Biden with having uh, accepted uh, uh, basically um, a bribe, would, would have accepted funds to try to uh, for quid pro quo actions here in the United States. And mm-hmm. so that was reported to the FBI. Uh, the FBI then documented that in that form FD-1023. Uh, the, the House oversight was made aware of that uh, when there was a, a confidential informant, a whistleblower, if you will, that came forward and reported that that document was in the possession of the FBI. Uh, and so for months now, uh, Comer has been trying to, one, verify the existence of the document, uh, uh, and he was able to verify the existence of the document. Uh, he and the ranking member were shown a redacted copy of that document earlier this week. Uh, but since that document is not classified, since there's no ongoing investigation that anyone is aware of regarding these allegations, uh, we think that that document needs to be released first to the Committee of Jurisdiction, which is the oversight, uh, and later to the public as a whole. Uh, and the FBI director has refused to do that. Uh, he's refused to uh, share the document with anyone outside of the, the chairman and the ranking member, uh, uh, making claims that it would put his informants uh, at risk if that document was released. Uh, We've tried to make reasonable concessions with the FBI, allowing them to redact out things uh, that would uh, make it more easily or uh, more easy to identify uh, this whistleblower. Uh, but uh, the FBI director has dug in, and so there will be a hearing which will be set later this week before the Oversight Committee uh, that if some resolution is not reached, uh, the Oversight Committee uh, intends to hold a vote as to whether to hold uh, the FBI director in contempt of Congress. Hmm. Does the House have the power uh, to, to um, say, draw up impeachment papers against a director of an agency like this? Does it have any power as, as to just the disposition of Director Ray in, in, in that seat? Yeah. Now, what, what, what would most likely happen if oversight does vote to hold the FBI director in contempt, uh, then it would go to the House floor probably sometimes next week uh, for a full vote of the entire House. Okay. Uh, and uh, at that point, uh, Director Ray would then be uh, referred to the Department of Justice uh, to see whether or not criminal penalties should be imposed for uh, his uh, inability or unwillingness to comply with a, a, a proper oversight component of the United States Congress. Okay. Uh, if he fails to do so, uh, it would be proper for uh, Congress to consider whether or not uh, that uh, would be um, 
uh, an act or conduct that would be an impeachable offense. Uh, but the House could very well at some point, uh, if they chose to, to, to do so, uh, if the if, uh, FBI Director Ray continues not to comply with the lawful request of Congress, uh, he could not only found to be in contempt of Congress, uh, but there could be an impeachment investigation uh, began against the FBI Director. Okay, makes sense. Is this something you're receiving uh, a fair amount of calls uh, from your constituents about, that they, they see this as just the height of corruption in Washington, and they want you and your, your Republican colleagues to, to take action and to press forward with this investigation? You know, th- th- this is something that people back home have been talking about for some period of time. Again, this this is just uh, another uh, uh, another instance uh, that we can add to that. I-, I think that there is a broad distrust uh, of government, particularly at the, at the federal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, as-, as we look at kind of the the pattern uh, of the FBI, and particularly those not-, not the rank and file FBI agents, because you know, as a prosecutor, uh, I work very closely with members of the the Jackson Field Office, and I'll tell you that that many of those individuals did outstanding work. Uh, They assisted uh, our state and local law enforcement officers in in solving crimes and apprehending defendants um, who um, had fled the jurisdiction. Uh, But I think the apprehension by most people in Mississippi relates to the people at the very top, Uh, and they feel like uh, uh, that, if you will, uh, that uh, the uh, the, the the deck is stacked against conservatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, the FBI has become politicized, uh, and, and and I think that there are some very valid concerns uh, when the, and, and some very valid arguments that individuals are making about those people at the very top of the Department of Justice. Speaking of possible impeachment, is there is still continuing talk about possibly? Um, proceeding with such on Secretary Mayorkas for his handling of the border. Those those conversations are, are still ongoing. Uh, you know, uh, the first thing we really wanted to do in the Homeland Security Committee was to get our border bill uh, out of committee onto the House floor uh, and passed off the House floor. We were able to do that several weeks ago. Uh, and so now we can turn to more of an oversight component, uh, okay. and we can begin really uh, drilling down uh, on what Secretary Mayorkas did or didn't do uh, to create the crisis that we've seen on the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do know that since Title 42 has expired, we have seen a temporary reprieve on the border as far as the the, the numbers of encounters, Uh, but we believe uh, that it is very likely uh, that those numbers in the next several weeks will return to the baseline, basically where those numbers were prior to the expiration of Title 42. Uh, And Republicans also have concerns about uh, the continued expansion of the CBP-1 app. Uh, It is an app uh, administered by the Department of Homeland Security, uh, and it allows individuals who want to come into the country to claim asylum to go on the app uh, to be able to set up appointments, to be able to legally enter the country uh, where uh, those claims are then vetted, uh, and in many cases to be allowed to remain in the country. And so we know that currently uh, DHS is able to process roughly a 1,000 uh, um, applicants a day. Uh, they're seeking to expand that very quickly to 40,000. And 
so what many people, including myself, see is the, the, the Department of Homeland Security is using this as a workaround, a shell game, if you will, to allow individuals to enter the country, uh, to stay in the country uh, for their asylum claims, uh, but they're not counted against the encounter numbers uh, that uh, hmm. we've seen uh, Border Patrol report over, over <laughs> the last several years. And so uh, wow. this is a way, if you will, to take those numbers off the books. And so if you pull the encounter numbers that CBP is reporting, you see a decrease or drop in those numbers. But part of the reason is because of the uh, expansion in the use of the CBP-1 app, uh, which many Republicans, including myself, uh, feel that that is not a valid use for that tool, that that was really designed more for trade to be able to help individuals who were trying to bring goods into the country to be able to use that to expedite that. Uh, and it's now been something that this administration uh, is using to continue to funnel individuals into the country uh, based on asylum claims that they're making. Well, it's consistent because I, I watched the president's speech after the debt ceiling bill was, was signed, and most of what he said there really was inaccurate and distortion of real math and real numbers as well. Congressman, always appreciate you uh, coming on the program and giving us an update from Washington. I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Gerard. Have a great day. You too, sir. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. Hey, hey, I'm all shook up. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well Studios. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is middays. Appreciate the congressman calling in from Washington, giving us an update. Lots of stuff going on up there. Wondering if Mr. Guest is aware that the United States Postal Service has cut thousands of rural carriers' pay based on an experimental and flawed scanner. I myself have lost five thousand bucks a year. That's Gene and Mendenhall. So, Gene, it's my understanding that the union, the National Rural Letter Carriers Association, has filed a grievance on this plan. And I guess we'll see where that goes. This appears to be something that was negotiated quite some time ago, many years ago, and it's just now going into effect, the Rural Route Evaluated Compensation System. Interesting. Seems uh, seems kind of weird. I'm, and I'm not sure to what extent our elected officials in the Congress um, can even get involved in this. That's something I'm trying to figure out as well. It's, uh, it's a little different the way that uh, that system works, the compensation system for the post office, workers of the post office. Wow. Senate Democrats and rural carriers facing pay cuts say 
USPS and its union have given them insufficient training on the new system that went into effect last month. About two-thirds of the carriers, some 14,000 across the nation, are facing pay cuts as a result. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like a big misunderstanding is is, uh, all the news that I read on it on the part of those who negotiated this deal quite some time ago. Interesting. By the way, Senator John Toon, Republican from South Dakota, just announced his endorsement for Tim Scott for president. So in the last 24 hours, we got Chris Christie, Mike Pence, and now Doug Burgum. Who? Right. He happens to be the governor of North Dakota. I actually know of Mr. Burgum. I've never met him because he was a consultant at McKinsey, and the firm I work for, Anderson Consulting, competed with those guys somewhat. By the way, that's who Shad White's wife works for, McKinsey. I think she still does. They're there a a global consulting organization. I've subscribed to their their newsletter for quite some time. They they do a lot of work in the IT world. But Mr. Burgum was one of the founders and longtime CEO of Great Plains Software. In the early days of the PC, um, when when those tools were mostly used for spreadsheets and word processing, right? That's what the personal computer primarily did office automation, but there were a lot of um, accounting software, transaction systems, some vertical, like to run a special type of, uh, of entity, of business, but there were just a lot of generic accounting software products as well. Great Plains was one of the first. Open Systems out of Minnesota and then Great Plains may have been. The first, Mr. Burgum was involved in its founding. Great Plains sold to Microsoft. Microsoft decided to enter the, it's called ERP, uh, Business uh, Enterprise Requirements Planning. They decided to enter the business by acquiring Great Plains for $1.1 billion in 2001. And so now... What used to be known as Great Plains Software is known as Dynamics GP. That's the Microsoft tool. They also have Dynamics SL. That is what used to be Solomon Software, S-O-L-O-M-O-N, introduced in the 84 or 5 time frame. And it was the first PC-based accounting software built on a relational database model which is common today, but that was pretty revolutionary back then. Microsoft acquired them as well, and it is branded as Dynamics SL. It's very common enterprise class ERP tool. But, Mr. Burgum, I was shocked to find out, because I heard this morning uh, when he announced that he came from the technology software business, and he was wealthy, did well in that endeavor. And that 
That made me curious, and I looked it up and had no idea. He was the Great Plains guy, and it sold in 2001, $1.1 billion. But he is a candidate for president. So who we got now? We got Trump, DeSantis, Ramaswamy, Ram, pardon me, Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Asa Hutchinson, Larry Elder. Uh, who am I missing? Mike Pence, Chris Christie, Doug Burgum. I think there's somebody else. That's all from memory. Who did I miss? That's a big field. It's getting bigger. Might have some more jump in. Ryan Binkley? Who the heck's that? Dallas area businessman and non-denominational pastor. Okay. I missed that one. Running as a Republican? He's oh. declared. Okay. I missed that one. Apparently he's already got ads playing in Iowa. <laughs> Where the primary's coming up. So what do we got? 13-14 in the field now? Wow. I listened to Chris Christie's announcement yesterday. I had no idea what he was talking about. I couldn't follow, like, what's the message here? I, I really I couldn't. I'm serious about that. And then Pence. Chris Christie's never been a great communicator. I don't know what he was saying. All I could think about was the great Photoshop memes of him on the beach. There were like a million of them. Remember that? <laughs> on the beach. Well, I mean, he actually had pictures taken of him on, on the, the beach, beach when everybody else was supposed to be off the beach. In a beach chair. Yeah. <laughs> those were great. But there was a million memes done on those deals. So he's running. And now Bergham, I just saw some video in the studio here of him, I guess, back in his home state of North Dakota with a crowd behind him in support, having a big rally there. What possesses him to do it, you wonder? I don't know. But that's a big old field, no doubt about it. And then, you know, we also have, on the Democrat side, someone you don't hear a lot about, what's the, uh, used to be a professor at Harvard. Remember him? Gosh, I can't remember his name. But uh, but he's running as well. Uh, black guy, name escapes me. I'll, I'll remember it in a minute. But You're you not talking about Cornell West, That's it. That's it. Yes, thank he's you. He's Princeton. Princeton. And okay. he's running independent. Okay, uh, my bad. So we I got, got it all we wrong. got Cornell West, the Tiger King, and Afro Man are all running <laughs> as independents. <laughs> Who was the one that ran on the rents too damn high party? <laughs> that was remember that the last time. Oh, it was my Jimmy God. McMillan. The rents too damn high. <laughs> oh gosh, Cornell. Now he's a card carrying racist. Oh like, yeah, he's a blithering idiot. <laughs> big time. I have no idea how he made it into Princeton with how stupid that man is. Equity. It's, it had to be an equity play. It's the only thing I could come up with. You know, something we've discussed on the program before that I felt wasn't getting enough attention are the expiration, the, is the expiration of the Trump tax cuts, the individual provisions expire at the end of 2025. Well, Republicans in the House are looking to address that situation. This just came out yesterday. 
they're hoping to introduce a bill later this month that would make the tax cuts permanent and also revive some of the business breaks. I don't really think they're breaks. They're just tax provisions that benefit businesses when they make capital investments, for example, or investments in R&D from a tax perspective. And these things are also being phased out. And, of course, the Democrats are celebrating that. So they're trying to figure out a way to re-implement those and uh, also the business interest. That was the other thing, the business interest deduction. So we'll see if we get a bill. It's got no chance of passing, as you know, which means, folks, your taxes are going up if this is not extended, the Trump tax cuts, after 2025. Coming right back. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. Classic Eagles there bumping us into this segment on uh, Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Thanks for joining us today on the ceasefire text line. Why would they remove the flag? You're talking about the pride flag at the VA on the Gulf Coast. They will not face any consequences for flying it in the first place. Well, they did. They got, got called out by members of the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, maybe Some would we'll, argue that's just attention. That's not even consequences at this point. Okay. But I think it's been been taken down, right? I think the response was. But I but I hear you. I, I know it's seems like that once again double standards at play. If God forbid they would have flown a, a flag that had, let's say, a cross on it representing Christianity, there would have been national outrage, of course. So I'm with the congressman, military installations, federal installations, period, buildings, facilities, where there are flagpoles, should not fly any flags that represent any individual group, in my view. Unless that individual group is a branch of the military. Sure. Or perhaps an individual unit. Sure. And I... I apologize. I guess I don't consider that like a a special private sort of group. I think that's part of government in that particular case, and I think that's totally appropriate, as we said during the interview with the congressman. But it's another example, though, where this guy that we had to vote for because he would restore the soul of the nation and unite us keeps taking all these actions, making all these moves, blathering all these statements that are divisive in nature. That's divisive in nature. It just is. And so what you end up with is more contempt, more disdain, 
for a group because they're getting a preferential treatment, if nothing else. And they At don't. At the same time, while screaming about, we're so oppressed. Right. right. And it doesn't represent the entirety of those who, in this case, served in the nation's military, who were entitled to the rights and the privileges and the services provided by the Veterans Administration. And we should not distinguish between the sexual orientation of our veterans. They're all veterans. Period. That's it. That's all you need to know. Greg and Newton says that it's an insult to me, talking about the flag flying on the coast. I'm sorry, but that's the way I feel 100%. Donna and Mendenhall said that with respect to the United States Postal Service that Gene was right, not getting any training, we lost money, and the union isn't helping us. Uh, I hear you, Donna, and I, I guess at this point it would seem like the appropriate course of action would be to bond together with your fellow mail carriers and go to the union. I mean, it's their deal, and they represent you. Trump is loving all these people coming in, says Chris from Oxford. Chris Christie and his announcement yesterday. It was weird. He he had this sort of theme where he focused on the word small and just small. I heard it. Like, what is he talking about? He um he also attacked Trump. And of course, I know it's shocking, but Trump responded with counterattacks. And a little animation of Chris Christie holding a plate, perusing a buffet. <laughs> oh, gosh. He said his speech was, quote, small, because he did say the word small like a thousand times. And Trump noticed. He says, quote, how many times did Chris Christie use the word small? In all caps, of course. Does he have a psychological problem with size? In all caps. Actually, his speech was small and not very good. It rambled all over the place, and nobody had a clue of what he was talking about. I agree with President Trump on that one. I listened to it like, when is he going to actually talk about running for president? Hard to watch, boring, but that's what you get from a failed governor. (laughs) who left office with a 7% approval rating and then got out of New Hampshire, got run, pardon me, out of New Hampshire. This time it won't be any different. He's talking about in the 16 cycle where he didn't make it very far in the uh, primary competition. Some Republicans speculate that Christie's pugilistic (laughs) nature... Could offer an opening to other Republicans if he takes jabs at candidates like Trump. We shall see. It will definitely be entertaining. That is uh, something we can count on. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. Stay with us. And now. Another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. 
now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three, the afternoon portion of Middays is back with you. We are in the Element Wealth Studios on this hump day. Mike Pence joining the party. That's the uh, the headline there on the tube in the studio. And they just also uh, displayed a recent poll of the president's job performance, 42% approval. I want to meet those people. Stephen A. Smith, you know who he is, ESPN host? He blasted old Christie, didn't he? <laughs> oh, he's In said, fairness, he blasted Biden, too. He, he sure did. He absolutely did. He said that uh, he's the best candidate for the left, but he's utterly embarrassing, That's <laughs> what Smith said. Wow. It's going to be a very interesting run of events here, watching all this stuff. Yeah, Chris from Oxford, who said, Trump is loving all these people coming in. I totally agree. By the way, Christie said about Trump, he likened him to the Harry Potter villain, (laughs) Voldemort. Called him a, quote, lonely, self-consumed, self-serving mirror hog. (laughs) That's what he called him. Oh, gosh. I don't think he's ever read Harry Potter. (laughs) Probably not. I don't think Voldemort spent much time in front of a mirror. (laughs) Dude didn't even have a nose. (laughs) William and Brandon says, nothing will ever beat the Bernie Sanders with his mittens picture. That was pretty good. I agree, William. We were talking about... Christie and the beach shot. Gosh, there were a lot of memes made on that, weren't there? People came up with some pretty creative, funny stuff, honestly. Rod in the Delta says, Pat Paulson for president. Rhino's too young to remember that. You ever heard of that? Smothers Brothers? I think it was Laugh-In. I'm looking it up. I think it was. Right? And that... I want to say, I mean, he was a comedian, but I thought he got his, maybe it was Smothers Brothers. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I have no idea where I pulled that from, but. Yeah. Word association. Yeah, uh, because this, the Dick and Tom were great at being straight men for him, you know, when he would come out and do his shtick. I'm thinking about something else related to laughing. That was like a, seems like related to the presidency. I have to think about that some more. Pat Paulson for president. There's actually a book. Really? I do remember. Okay, so now I'm seeing there is some connection to laugh in. I had to have to figure that out. Apparently, Pat Paulson's name appeared on the ballot in New Hampshire for the Democrat primary in 1996, <laughs> where he received 921 votes. Finishing second to Bill Clinton, who had 76,754 votes. Second. (laughs) With 921. But he still finished ahead of politicians like Buffalo Mayor James Griffin. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) 
Why do they do it? Why do they subject themselves to that stuff? I'm not sure. I miss those old shows, though. They were good. They were kind of silly, but good. Smothers Brothers was definitely good. And so was Laugh-In. It was kind of consistent with the culture of the day. The modness, as everyone would recall from that time period. Well, let's see. P-O-W-M-I-A, sure, that would be an appropriate flag as well. Um, on, a, on a federal building, installation, I think so. And you see that sometimes, right? See that flag flying? I think that'd be appropriate. But again, that, that doesn't represent a particular demographic. That, that represents all demographics that happen to be either prisoners of war or missing in action. Absolutely. Jerry in Waynesboro says, Discamus. What are we talking about? Oh, if facts matter, says you need to play this. Gotcha. As a proud Army veteran, I do not believe the pride flag should be flown at the VA. Neither should the KKK flag, Confederate flag, Alzheimer's flag, etc., autism. Yeah, agree with you there. That's Chris from Past Christian. The Fickle Finger of Fate Award. I remember it, Mose. That's awesome. That was from the program Laugh-In, of course. Remember, Laugh-In brings you the news? That was good. The guy he had a great voice that did that. Goldie Hawn became a very successful actress. Got her start on Laugh-In. I think Richard Dawson was uh, a frequent star on the show as well. Lily Tomlin with her famous telephone operator shtick. Richard Dawson's one of those funny people that it doesn't matter if you get any of the context of his jokes, he's still funny. <laughs> he is pretty funny. And he had a great... If you watch some of those reruns of him on game shows, and they'll be talking about something that I didn't live through and I never learned about in history, but he can still make it funny. He could. And he was... He had a great sort of delivery. But... Um, was on Match Game forever. He was like a staple. And then, of course, hosted a Family Feud, right? First host of Family Feud. Kissed every every female. Gosh, you couldn't do any of that today, could you? That would be Cancel City. But that was what he was known for. He was good. Good host. What was the guy that was the, like the announcer, the narrator? Was that Gene Raber? I don't no, Gene Rayburn was the host of Match Game. Maybe, who am I thinking about? That was uh, not Johnny Olson. He was one as well. The Price is Right guy also did some other game shows. I can't remember who the guy was that was the announcer, the narrator. What a great voice he had. Richard Dawson. I, you remember the shtick. It's pretty cool. The Fickle Finger of Fate. Roseanne, Rosanna Dana says Carol in New Albany. That, that would have been um, Saturday Night Live. That's a little different deal. Roseanne, Rosanna Dana. Although it could be argued without laughing, you would not have had Saturday Night Live. I agree. I would argue that it kind of sets the stage for that. I would totally agree with you. 
All good stuff. Dawson was also known for Hogan's Heroes. He absolutely was. Lou Kirk, wasn't that the character that he played on Hogan's Heroes? What a great show that was. From from the U.K. It was a soldier from the U.K. that was also in the prison camp there. The Stalag. Yeah, all good stuff. What's up with the Ark in Tennessee with the multicolored lights? Kirk from Columbus asks. I don't know. Yeah, Gilda Radner, thank you, played uh, Roseanne, Rosanna Dana. One of the original, I believe, cast members of Saturday Night Live. Yeah, it was awesome, too. Don Pardo, that is that who the announcer was? Maybe so. Don Pardo did several of the game shows. Had a great voice for doing that. Was it him that did uh, Family Feud? That's on the ceasefire tax line. Mm, looks like he did The Price is Right and Jeopardy. Jeopardy, I remember for sure. When Art Fleming used to host Jeopardy a long time ago. Um, can't remember. It escapes me. Who did Family Feud? Apparently he also did the Live from New York at Saturday Night. He sure did. That's exactly right. What a great voice. Before the cast members started doing it. Yeah. As a part of the cold open. Okay. That's right. Sure did. Gene Wood. That's who it was. Gene Wood. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're just reminiscing down memory lane here a little bit. I think they also had Johnny Olson and Gene Wood. I think Johnny Olson maybe started Family Feud, as I recall. This is Johnny Olson speaking. You remember him. He was great. Uh, Back to uh, all the kind of stuff going on here in the country. There was a brawl last night. We talked about a bit of a a (laughs) dust-up at the Jackson City Council meeting. There was a brawl yesterday over a California school district's Pride Month vote. The Glendale School District folks showed up. On both sides of the issues, some supporting recognition and celebration of Pride Month in the school district and several rowdy demonstrators who opposed it. And the police had to come break it up. This is school district meetings in this country these days. Because everybody, not everybody, but the left seems to be hell-bent on pushing a political agenda, a cultural agenda in the schools. We're coming right back. Stay with us. Check it out. Let's do this. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. Thanks for joining us on Middays. We're back in the Element Well Studios. Gene, uh, pardon me, Larry and Mai says, Gerard, you're telling your age, I know. 
walking down memory lane through all those old 60s and 70s game shows, trying to recall all those people and all those names. I'll admit I was kind of a game show junkie growing up. I was just fascinated with the whole concept and always marveled at at the announcers and the hosts. I just thought that was kind of cool. I don't know why. just had an interest in that. And every year, Rhino, at uh, my company's annual – my company, of course, was was named Venture Technologies, and that was our corporate DBA name, and – we would hold a, an annual State of Venture event. And our various members of our team would present, talk about the past, talk a whole lot about the future, and plans and programs and opportunities and strategy. And I would always deliver the annual CEO State of Venture address. But you got to have fun. So I'd always start it with some outtakes of game shows, because the team knew I was kind of a game show nut. And I'd pull up these hilarious outtakes of all the various game shows through the years, and we do about five minutes of that before we would dig into all the all the uh, complex business matters. But one was the story of the Press Your Luck scandal. You remember that? Oh, yeah, where the guy figured out the pattern. Yeah. <laughs> he literally used um, VCR and recorded the games. And he reviewed those. He studied those to understand the pattern of when the whammies would show up. When you, I guess, was it a plunger you'd hit or something like that? you push, and that would start the wheel spinning like a slot machine. And the idea was to match them up like a slot machine and avoid the whammy. And you keep keep accumulating money until the whammy showed up. And then you'd lose everything. And this guy figured out the consistency and the pattern. It wasn't random. You didn't have random capabilities, computer capabilities, random number generators, RNGs is what they call them. This guy named Michael Larson, 1984, won $110,000. And when they find, and it was all legal. And when they finally figured out, did some research on it, and he admitted, "Yeah, all I did was record the shows, hours of the shows." And I've I've seen photos of like his apartment where he had the televisions and the big old VCRs of the day set up, and stacks of tapes. And that's where he was doing all the all the studying. And he actually said to make it not look obvious. He would sometimes hit a whammy just to make night make it look like he didn't figure it out totally, and he kind of oh shoot you know <laughs> he would act disappointed, but not such that he would be eliminated from continuing in the game. Of course, however, the rules worked, and he ended up winning a hundred and ten thousand um, dollars just by studying the pattern of the whammy. Remember, it would sort of go around the board, oh, I yeah. think. And it's pretty cool. Um, yeah, 110 grand. So I actually played that a couple of minutes of that one day uh, at one of the State of 
venture addresses that we had. Always fun. I miss those days. It was a lot of fun. Well, I mean, you could say that guy manufactured his own luck when it came to winning that money on pressure luck, but the world had a funny way of getting back at him because he, later in life, lost a whole lot of money trying to game another contest. I believe it was a local radio station huh. was offering a big reward of like thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar reward if you could match the serial number on a one dollar bill with a random number they read out on the air. Wow! And he had taken a big chunk of that money that he'd won out of the bank in singles, checked all of them, didn't have the winning one, so he took half of that back to the bank, while the other half sitting at his house. Well, while he's gone to the bank. Somebody broke in and took the rest of it. Unbelievable. And when he hollered at the press, you look, people like, hey, guys, maybe we should do a tournament of champions so I can <laughs> have another chance again. of winning. And they declined. I didn't know that. So, by the way, this $110,000, one day, one show, one day, that <laughs> he took home. It was called a spin. I said they hit the plunger, but there's something you press. That's why they call it press your luck. And it, it, what would happen is they'd start the spinning, and you'd press the plunger in front of you, and it would stop the board, and it would, and that would determine whether or not you got a whammy or you stopped on one of the one of the uh, squares displayed that would show the amount of money or a prize that you would win. But he won one hundred ten thousand dollars in one day, and there are photos of him in the middle there, and the other two contestants on the side. I'm looking at one rhino, and his board in front of him, you know, the display of the amount they've accumulated, his says 102851 and he's got his hands up in the air. And the one on the left's got 4600 4, and they're looking at him like, Those were good days on pressure. <laughs> exactly right. In 1984, it was a dang good day. And these guys are like, where did this guy come from? <laughs> oh, man. That's pretty cool. Can't do that anymore. It's all very, very random, but back then... It wasn't. My favorite Pat Paulson joke, what is a weenie? Is that what you put on a bun with some mustard? <laughs> you have to remember that. That was pretty good. Zach and Oxford says the gong show and the newlywed game were good ones. They were. Those were popular when I was in college. We'd gather around the TV room with... Uh, my friends there and watch the gong show. That was like a, a daily deal. You look forward to that. The gong show. You don't remember that? I do. I remember yeah. reruns of the original and then the reboot, and I guess it just wasn't for me. It was terrible. I just sat there and cringed through the entire <laughs> process. It was terrible. Um, uh, Chuck Barris, right? And they had uh, Mean Gene, the dancing machine. <laughs> Oh no, it can't be. And the the uh was it the unknown comic came out wore a, wore a paper bag on his head. It was it was corny stuff, but it was funny. Just wholesome fun, I guess as you would say. JP Morgan, they, he always called her JP Morgan <laughs> when they would grade the the uh the contestants that would come out and do all the little acts. That was pretty cool. A little Part of me always thought I could be a game show announcer. My big money voice is on point, says Rhett in Ridgeland. That's pretty Come cool. Come on down. That's right. Chuck Berry, right. I think it was created by 
Chuck Barris, if I'm not mistaken. The show seems to be the producer's name that comes to mind. But Chuck Berry was the host, kind of the frizzy hair guy that was sort of funny. And they'd always <laughs> they'd always pan the camera over to the, the three panelists, you know, when they were be dancing around with a big old gong, <laughs> the gong hammer. Uh, you just knew it was coming when it was a bad act. Mo says Match Game was the funniest game show. I love Match Game. Still comes on the Game Show Network real early in the morning. Match Game 73 or something like that, starring Gene Rayburn. All good stuff. Now they're just kind of goofy, the present day game shows. Family Feud's still pretty good. Steve Harvey. Oh, yeah. He's pretty good. He's really good at that, too. Yeah. Uh, what's this? LFNY has always been in the cold open. Live from New York. Oh, oh live from New York. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's always yeah. been a part of the yeah, opening yeah. of the show, but earlier seasons you had the announcer say it, and it wasn't until the cast got more renowned that the cast started making it a part of the cold open. Yeah. Which has been a tradition for eons now. Yeah, exactly. Gosh, the, the present-day version... Just doesn't measure up. It was just funny. They made fun of everybody. Now it's gotten so dang left leaning. Although they have, I would say, come out a bit. They're now starting to mock and make fun and do satire, make fun and do satire of of Biden and folks on the left. It's it's pretty good. But man, through the years they had some great, great actors, many of whom got their start, right? Big time on the program. Dan Aykroyd, of course. Got his start. Chevy Chase. Although he was never a full-fledged cast member. Always a guest. Chevy Chase was always a guest. guest. But there a lot. Oh, yeah. Right. Bill Murray. I mean, he went on to have a, a great career as well. Steve on the road says, Dragnet Adam 12. Yeah, back in the days when police shows were real popular like that. Primetime, 30-minute police shows. Always in Los Angeles, because that's where they filmed all that stuff. So that was just convenient, right? Emergency. Remember that one? That was a good one. We're having fun reminiscing about the old television days. We're stepping aside for a break. Coming back in the Element Well Studios. Half an hour left. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbons. On Super Talk Mississippi. The Diablo Motors had a hell of a sale downtown yesterday. Work got around, no money down, take years and years to pay. When I got there, the lot was bare, but the salesman said, hold on. For a little cash, I got a two-tone hatch. Out behind my barn If the devil danced in empty pockets He'd have a ball in mine <laughs> With a nine-foot grand The ten-piece band Ain't it the truth? We are back. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's middays from the Element Well Studios. We're talking about the game shows here. <laughs> Just reminiscing through the The golden history. age of game right, shows. Exactly, the golden age Almost uh, a chronology. You may have already said this, says Dave in Monticello, but what's my line? Yeah, it was great from the 50s. That's when they got started. It was just 
good entertainment. I think they were looking where the networks for programming, you know, to feature. And that was prime time back then. What's my line? I've got a secret to tell the truth. That one ran forever. Started out with Bud Collier, I think. Gary Moore was a host as well of To Tell the Truth. Those were good, good shows. A lot of fun. Really were. Interesting how uh, television, I guess, has evolved from that period. And that's the kind of stuff the whole family can watch, not be worried about, oh, my gosh, what's going to coming up next on the screen? Well, a part of the growth and change is due to technological advances. Yeah. I mean, at that point in time, like for What's My Line in 1950, you still had pretty much everything shot live. True. That's true. And you could um, see when there were little boo-boos. But they dealt with it. Great. They knew how to handle that and sort of made light of it. And also had live audiences, of course, as well. Oh, yeah. That was all part of it. And it was a big deal to, to become uh, a participant. To Which that's what's crazy the about the, the canned audio you have now. The can laughter, the laugh track that you hear in a lot of productions, those are played on a special instrument. I don't remember the name of it, but it looks like a, a keyboard, like a piano keyboard. And each key is a different laugh, and they'll they'll play that. But all those laughs were recorded back in the golden age of game shows. I didn't know that. So a lot of the people laughing are no longer with us on laugh tracks. Uh, wow. Well, that's some fascinating trivia there that I certainly did not know. But it makes sense. That's where they captured it from. That's why it sounds so real, because it is real. But you're saying they could they figure out a way to connect that to a keyboard-like instrument that someone would essentially play to produce the laugh tracks. Oh, yeah. No, that may not still be the case with yeah. all the digital digitalization, but for the longest time, it was kind of a, a specialty if you could get the laugh tracks to sound natural. That's cool. Didn't know that. The dating game, yeah, the newlywed game, they were funny. Agree. And, again, I say I, I just always was fascinated with the hosts, the, the talent. Jim Lang, longtime host of the dating game. Bob Eubanks, right, the newlywed game. I would say you got to have some special talent to deal with real people that aren't used to being on television like they were, con- the contestants. You never know what could come up. And crazy stuff did. And they just they took it in stride and handled it just so artfully. I was just always fascinated with that. Cool stuff. Yeah, the $100,000 pyramid. Who could forget that? Dick Clark. Yep, a lot of stuff. TV has devolved, says Steve in the Delta. Tom and Carthage. Devolve might be a better term. Okay, I got you. Instead of evolved is what I said, right? Well, it had to evolve, and then producers got lazy once the advent of reality TV came along. Yeah. Because they could convince the viewing audience that, oh, this is happening naturally without any input from us. But if you watch any reality television episode, it's going to have credits rolling at the end. And if you look carefully, they're going to credit writers. That's true. In every single one of them. That's a good point. Totally good point. 
worth uh, reminds of password, of course. Alan Ludden, and then Password Plus said Bert Convy, right? He was, uh, you don't, you're looking like you don't remember that. I Bert. don't remember. Yeah, had Password, Password Plus, and they would announce it. It's not Password, it's Password Plus. <laughs> Bert Convy. That, what was the other one that he hosted that was pretty cool that had couples, and the couples would go off stage and they'd ask questions and come back? It's kind of like the Newlywed Game. I think that's the way it worked that Burt Convy hosted. I can't remember that one. I think that's how he got his start, as I recall, whatever that program was. All right, so you had Password. Yeah. Then you had Password Plus. Yeah. Then you had Password All-Stars. Okay. No, excuse me. Password All-Stars was a one-year thing that came before Password Plus. And then you had Super Password ah. until the late 80s. And then it went away till the mid to late 2000s. They had Million Dollar Password. <laughs> well, I think it's safe to say it was a popular show. And they would sort of modify it up a little bit and keep it going. Yeah, Bert Convy died at age 57 of a stroke. Title Tales. That was what it was. And that was... Um, that's in couples, and they would like to ask the questions, and the couple would sort of title. One member of the couple would title on the other one. The idea was to match those up, similar to the way the newlywed game. Worked. I agree with Mose on the ceasefire text line. There's no new ideas coming out of Hollywood. Just look at every movie over the last decade. Totally agree. It's based on either an old movie or it's a sequel to something that came out in the last decade and a half. I agree. Uh, Mike in Collinsville says, hard to beat an old episode of Let's Make a Deal. I agree. That, those were great. Uh, it came on like at noon or 1230 every day, our time, as I recall, when when I was young. And, uh, I mean, there's a there's a current version of it, but... I'll give you $1,000 cash, or you can have what's behind <laughs> door number three. Uh, Monty Hall, right? It seems like he was the host and the producer. And his helper there, Jay, and Carol, behind the curtain that Carol Merrill is pointing to. There's a great, like, Cheech and Chong episode that's kind of a parody of that. <laughs> is it Wayne Brady that does the new version of Let's Make a Deal? I, seem that, I think that's right. Yeah. Now, that dude's hilarious. Yeah, he is. I agree. Jim and Hernando, you bet your life. Yeah, good one. Chuck Woolery, ob- yeah, absolutely fantastic. There's a documentary, Neil from Pontotoc says, on Netflix about a guy that studied retail pricing and figured out the price is right. Wow. Very strange, or is it strange that I've watched it? <laughs> I find that stuff interesting, too. Honestly. One that isn't Mike. quite from the golden age, but I haven't heard anybody mention. What's that? Supermarket Sweep. I don't remember that one. Oh, though. yeah, that you one was me. hilarious, because you'd have these people, and the whole point of the game show was to... Run through a grocery store, essentially a supermarket, and find stuff. <laughs> I don't remember. There's a whole that game one. show. Uh, David at West Point says he claimed to be CIA. Who are we talking about, Dave? Yeah, Stephen Turner. Press your luck. No whammies. Yeah, you're right, Steve. We just talked about the the scam, the hundred ten thousand dollars that Michael Larson won by studying the VCRs of countless episodes of the game to to learn the. The, uh, the spin pattern, the whammy spin pattern. David in Madison says, all new movies, prequels, sequels, remakes, and Oscar bait. They're saying Chuck Barris claimed to be a CIA agent? Oh, I don't know. 
The Gong Show? I don't know. How about that? Yeah, in 1984, Barris wrote an autobiography, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. I didn't know that. And in the book, he states he worked for the Central Intelligence Agency as an assassin in the 60s and 70s in I Southeast see. Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. Man, I'm having a hard time processing that one. Sharon and Brandon reminds, of course, the CIA show. denies Barris ever worked for him. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. And then in an interview on the Today Show... In 1984, Barris admitted to having made the story up. Quote, no, I was never a CIA hitman. I never did those things. I once applied for the CIA, and while I was going through the process, I got a job and went on television. Okay. But I'd always wondered what would have happened if I had done both. That, I just can't picture that guy in that role for some reason. Joker's wild. Yeah, that was a good one. Joker, Joker, Joker. The, uh, the parody... Somebody said something. Yeah, Cheech and Chong parody was too funny. Yeah. So what happens is he's a contestant, right? <laughs> and he gets to choose one of the doors. One, two, or three. Door number one. No two. No three. No one. No two. No one. So finally he settles on one. You've won a brand new Jaguar. He says, oh, shoot. We already have a small car. <laughs> oh, man. They were great. Oh, wow. You bet your life, Groucho Marx. You said the void, you got the void. Yeah, all good stuff. It's been fun. Sometimes you have to just veg out a little bit and talk some stuff other than the wild, woolly world of politics that we do here every day on the program. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. We're coming right back with the final segment on Middays. Please stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Final segment, Middays. Don't forget... I'm on the road again. After the show here, got to go home, pick up the bag, head down to Point Clear, Alabama. I will uh, be attending tomorrow, at least tonight and tomorrow, tonight for dinner, tomorrow, the Mississippi Hospital Association's convention down at Point Clear. I'm honored to be the speaker tomorrow for breakfast. Boy, I hope they're awake. When I get up there and have to start talking about politics, that's what my assignment is. To Are talk you about. before or after the meal or during the meal? I'm not sure exactly, but um, hopefully we can uh, keep folks interested for 45 minutes. If I were in attendance, I would hope it was after the meal because politics before breakfast might put you off your appetite. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Uh, Chuck Barris, by the way, the uh, known as the host and creator of The Gong Show, Created, of course, the dating game and the newlywed game. Those were from the 1960s iconic uh, game shows. New funniest game show, Hollywood Square, says Mose. It is pretty good. 
It is pretty good. Was that Paul Lynn that was always in the middle? Yeah. Paul Another Lynn. funny dude. Yes. He is. The um, going to a Mississippi Hospital Association meeting outside of the state of Mississippi is a question. Well, there are honestly a number of associations uh, in Mississippi who hold their conventions, their meetings outside of the state. I'm not in charge. I don't control that. I've just been asked to go speak. Newlywed game. Knew a couple that were on the show. For when was the last time did you do something he said not to do? Answer, not to be wearing a house coat when she greeted him at the door. Him, what happened? I told her I would rip it, rip it off her, so I did. <laughs> I love it. Have you ever, this is one, Soupy Sales, says Curtis and Biloxi. Yeah, he was great. Uh, I'll be back, by the way, Friday, I'll be up in Greenville for Steve Azar's Delta Soul Celebrity Charity Golf Tournament. Weather looks good this year. Remember last year, we got deluged, and we had to hang out inside, set set up the Element Well Studios on the road. Looking forward to that. Always a great event. Don't know who we got planned as guests, but you know it's going to be a great lineup because Azar brings them in from all over the place. First time I've interviewed an Olympic gold medalist was two years ago. His friends had come all the way to Greenville to participate in the event and, of course, raise some money for charity. Steve uh, does a great job for that. Um, so fast forward to present day. It's not doesn't air anymore. You heard of this one? Baggage. Aired on the Game Show Network. Now, I admit, not a lot of people watch the Game Show Network. I do. I don't know why that rings a bell. <clears throat> Hosted by Jerry Springer. Maybe that's why. Yeah. And when you think about just the, the wholesome, really innocuous, funny entertainment of these classic game shows we've talked about, nothing in there was inappropriate, right? No crazy off-the-wall content. This show, Baggage, was nothing but that. And it was about, it was kind of a bit of a takeoff from the dating game in that you had one person selecting from three candidates, and each of the three candidates would reveal their baggage, crazy stuff in their past, or it could be present. And they had Small baggage, medium baggage, and big baggage, right? And it was represented literally by suitcases, bags that would be stacked. The biggest on the bottom, the middle, and the uh, the, the medium size in the middle, and then the smallest on the top. And they would reveal, and you can imagine with Jerry Springer, rest in peace, it's going to have a bit of a racy theme to it, right? Oh, yeah. And, of course, it's cable. It's not network. But it would be stuff like the baggage, you know, I'm, I'm having sex with my stepfather while I'm dating his son or something crazy like that. You know what I'm talking about. Nutty, nutty stuff. Like, what? And, and that was, they like look for people that had weird stuff like that. Like, this is like depraved from a moral perspective. But... If we got to that point in society where that's the only thing that entertains us, just simple, innocuous, wholesome, funny entertainment doesn't fly anymore. 
I mean, I thought we thought the gong show was a little racy back in the 70s. This is nothing, honestly, uh, compared to something like this. But gee whiz, some of the things these people would reveal, it's like, this can't be real. <laughs> and it would be. Oh, man. We had fun today. I hope you guys did, too. We are out of time. But back in, uh, actually, I'm not in the studio. I'll be up in Greenville on a Friday. We have a guest host coming in tomorrow to entertain you and inform you. We appreciate you joining us, as always. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Mississippi Media Production.